welcome to episode 69 of For Christ's Sake Anakin. I'm your host, Matthew Neugebauer, coming to you live to air. I don't know what it was like outside, but it is January 14th, 2021. We had a we have a state of emergency and stay-at-home order here in Ontario, so I don't know what it was like outside, but uh, here inside it was nice and warm and COVID-free. Uh, it is also the Thursday after the Feast of the Baptism of Christ. If you're counting, uh, it's really just the Thursday after the first Sunday after Epiphany. Also, if you're counting, so we're into that season preparing for Lent coming up. I am joined, as always, by R2-D2 and my handy water bottle. I think you may have caught more of the, the water bottle than the R2, but that's all right. Uh, today we are going to continue talking about the High Republic building up to uh, the, the, the great event and the great uh, collection of novels and comics and uh, a streaming series one day down the line um, and what it can tell us about spirituality and faith and the Jedi and the Republic and all that fun stuff. Uh, I'm going to kick it off by discussing narratives of disaster. And I'll get into what I mean, narrative, sorry, of great disaster. I'll get into what I mean by that in a bit. First off, though, I want to make a bit of a, uh, an addendum to what I said last week. Uh, I realized I mentioned Claudia Gray in, my, in the context of talking about why, uh, why I'm confident that the High Republic, with its colonial vibe and its uh, kind of, you know, Camelot 60s Kennedy vibe, why I'm still confident that it will address the underbelly of those things as really a narrative of decline in part. Well, as we'll go into, it's a narrative of great disaster. I mentioned Claudia Gray and Helen Azuka and Qui-Gon Jinn, of course. I also briefly, I mentioned the names, Daniel Jose Older and Justina Ireland. Specifically, I want to point out what I thought there, what I meant there was these are two people of color who are, if they at least follow their Twitter, from what I can gather, they're very sensitive to issues of, of racial racial identity tensions uh, in the United States. Um, they're Americans of color who have come through the year 2020, and uh, I, I think I, I hope I like to think they're 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 on top and they've come out on top um, <laughs> and part of this endeavor of the High Republic that of course was planned before 2020 and everything was pretty much probably written and done before everything. But, uh, I, I get from those two specifically a sensitivity to, to issues of, of social justice and racial justice that really came into the mainstream. Finally, I'd like to think in, in 2020. So I'm confident there. Also another bit I wanted to talk about with uh, the, the the colonial vibe of High Republic generally. This is all, of course, coming out of the uh, that event last Monday, the, uh, the preview event. There is a complicated vibe with colonialism because, for, to my mind, it also brings up missionary colonialism. And that'll be a whole episode in itself. But what you see on Starlight Beacon, for example, the, the station there, is it is a a republic outpost and a Jedi outpost and 
that's super complicated. And that's the thing about missionary colonialism is there were the atrocities and the imperial, uh, the atrocities of imperial expansion. And I think, for example, of the first one that comes to mind is, is French incursions, really what they were, incursions into to Huron and Iroquois territory here in southern what we now call southern Ontario. And yeah, the the residential schools and the disease and moving people from their lands and, and the reservations and the legacy that, that indigenous people still continue to struggle with and grapple with. And hopefully those of us in the church who are direct or not the, the institutions that were directly responsible are continuing to grapple with those things. But you ask indigenous Anglicans, uh, not that this was a good thing that happened, but okay, well, they had the gospel and the Christian faith, and that actually is a source of hope that transcends cultural expressions. That's what I was getting at with the Wookiee Jedi, transcending cultural expression. And so indigenous Anglicanism is flourishing and thriving. And as you know, the Anglican Church of Canada, the successor to the Church of England, the institution most directly responsible for the residential schools, the most, uh, the clearest way we are, thing we are doing to uh, bring reconciliation, seek reconciliation and healing is letting indigenous Anglicans do their thing, <laughs> um, supporting them financially, materially, institutionally, um, with relationships, but also with new structures that enable their self-determination. That's still a legacy of colonialism. The, the argument that the, at the end of the day is God could have done this and would have done this, hopefully brought people to light and to hope maybe even in native religions i don't know that's a another complicated question but um, the reality in the present at hand is uh, this is something god the, the hope and life that a lot of indigenous christians believe in, and cling to uh, has come to them in spite of what us uh settlers have, have done so <laughs> i wonder if i do wonder if if uh, if high republic is going to hint at some of these things i don't know i don't know if that's the author's experience if they've encountered these things they might do it accidentally we'll see <laughs> so those are some added thoughts from the uh the the event last monday that i i i, I was spoke speaking pretty quickly and giving a little pretty quick blow by blow, but I wanted to get that in the, tonight at least. Um, I'm going to have a swig of water. So on the pull list, I'm actually going to mention High Republic number one by Kev, Kevin Scott. And it's a little tricky reading these things because I actually don't have my copy of Flight of the Jedi in my hands yet. I know a lot of people have read it and finished it and loved it, but uh, I, I assure you, I'm getting it tomorrow, and I do have those first eight chapters that uh, I'm going to go on to speculate a little more, and I'm going to take notes, actually, about uh, where we see 
Jedi society interactions, Jedi and faith, giving it the kind of treatment to light of the Jedi that I did for master and apprentice last fall. Anyway, (laughs) going back to the comic book here. Um, yeah, it was a good start. It was an interesting look at Keeve Trennis, um, and, and her, uh, Trendotian master who I kind of hope isn't sus as the kids say. I hope they doesn't fall into the, the trap of all Trendotians are evil or evil bounty hunter, weird, the weird thing going on there. But, uh, that last page does have a, an odd uh, hint towards that. Also, Yoda's already a grandmaster at 700, and that that's fascinating because he's supposed to be out and about training Padawans, and yet he's also a grandmaster, which I guess that could work. I, I don't. I'll be curious to see. I think in Daniel Jose Older's IDW Adventures comic, how Yoda going around the galaxy as a grandmaster relates to what a grandmaster is when it comes to the council. And that's because that's what we've always been led to believe is uh, he's space Pope, right? He's uh, leads the council first among equals, but maybe not. You know, that, that's the thing is what we're looking at. Here's a segue for you guys. <laughs> what we're looking at with the high Republic is, as I said last week, a moment of, great change and transition and reassessment and reevaluation of how the Jedi do their thing. What is that thing that they do, <laughs> how they relate to the Republic and how they understand themselves. And it seems to me that this great hyperspace disaster is going to have a very profound effect on that. That leads them ultimately to, uh, both, the, you know, both the being in, in captured by in the thrall of, of Republic politics by the end of the Republic. But also I'm, I'm curious then to see, uh, is this, does this plant the seeds for Yoda and Obi-Wan being able to figure out, okay, what comes next? What do you do? What do we do now? Kanan, Ahsoka, all these, lots of Jedi who survive Order 66. Um, And that, that fascinating question that I have is, you know, what, well, how do, how do Jedi respond to disaster, right? There's, of course, the disaster of the higher, the great disaster of the High Republic, the greater disaster of Order 66. (laughs) You can argue, yeah, it's hard to argue which was the greater disaster, but the two are linked together. So I'll take some more water, listen to some more R2. He's running from disaster himself. So, again, the reason I'm bringing this theme up is uh, in part because the, the great disaster definitely kicks off and it is the impetus for really everything seems to be what happens in the High Republic, it's the thing that everyone's responding to. I, again, haven't read Light of the Jedi fully, so I don't fully know what it is. But I suspect it is something to do with hyperspace not being as usable or reliable as uh, they 
as people thought and people are used to. What's interesting, what's fascinating, what's odd is uh, this isn't the only narrative of disaster that we're actually uh, encountering in big franchise sci-fi in the year 2021 and 2020 as well. Uh, both Star Trek series that came out in 2020, uh, Picard season one and Discovery season three, those are our narratives post-disaster. And that that's an interesting convergence. And the Discovery one is a narrative after a warp speed disaster that something called the burn where all the dilithium get uh, gets destroyed the dilithium being in Star Trek the thing that powers warp drives and so uh, people are, aren't able to uh, yeah I'll, I'll get to what the implications of that are but it's pretty apparent you know they can't go from planet to planet and so that's a, that's an interesting convergence because both Star Trek, both Discovery season three and High Republic, were written separately, written a few probably a few years ago, if not, you know, early twenty nineteen or twenty twenty development. I guess they might have been filmed, filmed then. Um, and of course, Picard, it's a bit of a smaller disaster, but uh, you know the the android uprising on Utopia Planitia, the Martian uh, starship, uh, is it, yeah, the Martian starbase. But I do, yeah, the shipbuilding starbase. And that leads to widespread distrust of androids and widespread distrust of Romulans because it's, it's discovered that that's a Romulan ploy. And so, uh, I mean, it's presented, it's framed as a disaster by Picard because in his view, it leads the Federation to abandon its principles, both towards androids and towards Romulans, who uh, the Federation was making great strides of peace towards. And so those diplomatic t uh, talks break down, re diplomatic relationship breaks down. Um, the Federation becomes very insular and self-interested. And for Picard, that is the ultimate betrayal of everything he's sworn to protect and sworn to pursue as a Starfleet officer. So that is a disaster too. The other thing we're seeing, and I didn't know this was coming, was The Expanse Season 5. And you could say The Expanse is always sort of, is always a little dystopian, but it's more, being more realist often. What I didn't know was, uh, season five and the book that this is based on really, uh, I mean, it, it, it's the aftermath of a disaster that really shifts the, the balance of political bounds of power in, in the solar system. And the premise of that show in the book series that it's based on is earth is a government, Mars is a government. And then there's an outer planetary alliance that is, uh, former, Earth and Mars controlled miners who have now been able to establish partway through the series, establish their own uh, independent state. And uh, season five, I won't necessarily get into the details of it, but they launch an attack. The, these outer planetary alliance on asteroid belts, they're called belters. So they're miners on the, on these asteroids. They launch 
this attack that is somewhat successful on Earth and Mars and allowing a degree of their independence and asserting their own power. And, and so we have the, these four stories. I'm sure there's more. I'm sure there are more that I'm not... Uh, can't remember at the moment. But it's, it's fascinating <laughs> that in 2020, all these things developed much long before 2020. We're seeing them in the middle of a pandemic that I do maintain could have been prevented, that has disrupted so much of our lives, so much of our assumptions, revealed so much of what we uh, hold to be true about common life and, and my individual freedom to pursue what I want to do. It's pressed those things. And uh, what's important to note there is that, of course, this isn't by no means the first time that's happened, uh, that art imitating life and art imitating life in the midst of a disaster. When I mentioned maybe a few months ago, I was you know, last year, late last year, 2019, or 20, 2020, sorry, <laughs> it's now 2021, uh, that fall semester-ish, I was helping teach a class with church on the apocalyptic literature. And those were all about, uh, and famously apocalypses are, uh, you know, the, the, the visions of God coming and ending creation as we know it. And not just ending, but changing, fundamentally altering it usually with these very fantastical, fantastical symbols and images. And always, almost always, those stories are a response to crisis, a response to a crisis that has undone ultimate meaning, or, or undone, not ultimate meaning, it reveals ultimate meaning, but undone uh, the way things just business as usual as they've been for the last how many centuries or whatever. So you have, uh, just bring to mind, you, know, you have the book of Daniel. Many scholars believe that that was written um, in light of the Assyrian Greeks coming, marching on Jerusalem and destroying the temple and sacrificing a pig on the altar. And in response, we have the more literal accounts of First and Second Maccabees, and where we get the the, fest, the the narratives around the Jewish festival of Hanukkah. We also get the Book of Daniel, which talks in part about what, like these fables about life under a just under an occupying well, an ex, a power in exile, but an occupying power. But then we it also launches into this apocalyptic vision of the end of the world and uh, the statue with these uh, different materials. And we know those symbolize the different empires that are coming and have come. And so both Maccabees and Daniel are propaganda. We use that maybe in a positive way for uh, propaganda for the Maccabean revolt and that uprising and saying, God is with us. The book of Revelation is the, the most famous example, um, the, the, the Christian apocalypse at the end of the Christian Bible, 
And that one we, we, we know is in response, not so much to persecution by the Roman empire, but the pervasive presence of the Roman empire and the temptation for Christians then to compromise, to go along or be persecuted in different contexts. The destruction of the temple uh, is believed to be an important part of that. That was That's a great disaster for anybody who's connected with Judaism at all. And, and of course, Christians the fir- in first century, in the first century all, are primarily Jews, but there's a larger Gentile community becoming part of it. What we see with these apocalyptic texts, and then, you know, what we see, I'd like to think, with these contemporary narratives of disaster, and all along when we've had these narratives of disaster in genre fiction of different types. I use the word fiction somewhat loosely. I mean, it's myth. It's myth that expresses the things we value most, things we care about most. Um, You know, with Picard, it is, okay, well, we value a a common life that is compassionate and uh, is willing. You know, we see with Picard's character, he's able to go out and show compassion to Data and to androids and to the Borg, even ultimately, and to the Romulans that are willing to cooperate with him. What we'll see, I don't know, with the High Republic is um, this question of we are all the Republic and we are all the Jedi. Is that going to be pressed a bit? Is that going to be torn apart that we are all the Republic, we are all the Jedi? It is Lena So's rallying cry. Again, I wonder what the underbelly there is uh, because I, I'm somewhat skeptical of it. If um, what we see ultimately Jedi of the Republic, what we see ultimately is that the loyalty that Jedi show isn't to their mission to be peace guardians of peace and justice. It's to the defense of the Republic. And so they can go and fight a clone war. <laughs> that ultimately everyone but Darth Sidious loses. So that's one of the things that gets pressed. But really, especially in apocalyptic literature, it isn't just values. It's our cosmology, our worldview. And one thing I also do hope then is, we see again with Picard, we see especially with... uh, with discovery, sorry, is um, what's val- the worldview is that we're all interconnected, that we belong together. And at the end of discovery, there's this wonderful soliloquy by Michael Burnham that really, I think, brings Trek back to what it is, that that connection, cooperation, that bond. And that is a cosmology, that is a worldview, it is at least a, a claim on science, uh, on, on science, on the universe. Uh, they, they go into the mycelial network is a nice image of that too. Claim on what 
at least for us, human nature is they aren't just human characters, but they're coded as humans, of course. Because we all, we're, you know, it's what we got. But we don't just have humans. We have the rest of creation, as Christians say. So it's our response to disaster. Again, is it we are all the Republic? We are all the Jedi? One of the things that we already know is beautiful about the High Republic so far is the way Jedi have different uh, connections to the Force and, and, and different images for what that unity of the Force is. And so the authors of the High Republic are using this, this story to explore that and express that, what that means in their response to this great disaster. That, for example, uh, Avar Chris, you know, the master we, we encounter in the beginning of Light of the Jedi, I believe she's the one who sees the Force as this great symphony. And uh, the music and harmony, it's not just a solitary note. It, it's harmony and connection. And she has something actually, frankly, fairly similar to in Legends, the battle meditation. But it's used for peaceful purposes here. She's able to help calm people and connect people and be aware of where they are and what they're doing because they're all lights in the force. So it's, it's this in, in time of great darkness is when we really cling to the light. And I, I do want to see in the higher Republic, even darkness within us. Do we pursue the light, right? The, the underbelly again, what, how do we respond to that underbelly? Do we trust in our own ourselves and our, what we know, or are we open to the change that the light is calling us to? Okay, I need a bit more water. What do you think, R2? So, I, I, I ended that section on a high note. I'm going to get into a bit of a low note in the next, next two parts here. Sorry. <laughs> um... So what about the world we live in now? And what's fascinating is the expanse coming out now. That was based on a series of books that I believe was written around 9-11. And when you look back into the, the history of, uh, uh, you know, the, the recent history of disasterish sci-fi, I do think actually Star Trek Voyager was one of the first to really start this off in a very much more benign way. But there's this disaster that the Voyager crew experiences in the first moments of the show, in which they're flung, well, not the first moments, but in the first episode, they're flung all the way out from their home. And they have to explore what it means for them to be the Federation without the Federation and uphold those values and identity in all the different circumstances they encounter without the support of that home, without the profit that comes from adhering to those principles. And it's not a monetary profit in that case, but it's, it's a, I mean, the resources, but also the actual support, logistical support, personal, moral support. Anyway, Ron Moore around nine 11 
uh, I think it's Voyager. He he's fed up with it. He leaves because he's tired of the optimism <laughs> and says, you know what? 9-11, I'm going to reboot this older series called Battlestar Galactica. And it's going to begin with a 9-11 type event. And of course the showrunners for the expanse who happen to of course be the authors, James S.A. Corey is the pen name for them. Uh, a pair of, a pair of guys. Anyway, uh, bringing this show back now and what again what i said at the beginning just in season five we've come to what is really a 9-11 type event and exploring it does a good job of exploring the the inner workings of people who see an event as horrific as attacking the twin towers they see it as fighting for their freedom and their right to dignity and, and life and what it makes for, it's never entirely sympathetic with that, right? It makes for Marco Anaros being an incredible villain, incredible heartfelt, deep villain, <laughs> deep, uh, deep emotion, deep psychology villain that, you know, if you hear Keon Alexander talk about the process he went through in crafting this character and in his responses or in crafting the the portrayal i should say of this character but we're still seeing this story and and it's kind of early days in season five although we're probably about halfway through it but early days in this attack so we haven't fully seen the aftermath of it we are seeing the shifting allegiances and alliances what it tells me though the fact that we're actually seeing this show now, what it tells me is we are still in the era. History, you know, in 200 years, we are going to look back, whoever is alive, is going to look back at this era and say, oh yeah, this whole time was defined, marked by what happened in 9-11. It was marked by the this great, powerful symbol of American dominance in the world just one morning in September just taken out and the scar that that left in the American psyche uh, the uh, what it exposed about how that American dominance is more feeble than we think you know, fast forward to 2016 to 2017 fast forward to january 6 2021 where because that one event on september 11th 2001 exposed the need for a new order of global politics exposed the way america america cannot stand on its own and this is what happens when it keeps trying to do so. I'm not saying that the people themselves deserved it. I'm saying that th there's a reason history doesn't move in a vacuum. This was, you know, in the, in the minds and hearts of the people who committed this atrocity. And it was an atrocity, of course. There was a provocation of American investment in, uh, American military investment in, oil interests and 
all the bases and meddling in political interests in the Middle East and in Latin America. That dominance founded on really a lot of fear, a lot of fear of being attacked the very way they were attacked. They go and try to the UN trying to make a case. They they able to invade Afghanistan. They go make a case to invade Iraq, and the UN says no. They go and create this coalition of the willing, and and I'm actually one of the moments I'm proud of Canada for saying no to that quote coalition of the willing. We're seeing this narrative of the expanse now, and how really it is. I think going to tell us we adapt to the changing landscape or we continue to, uh, well, at least especially those in privilege adapting to the changing landscape or we, we continue to hunker down and double down and say, no, we will not change and we are going to actually threaten our own democracy and say, if Trump tells us this uh, vote was stolen, well, he's told us everything we want to think and, and hear and feel anyways to not change, that any change comes from that enemy over there, then we're going to go and treat them as an enemy over there. And uh, it's still an inability to grapple with the reality that white male America is not the only thing out there <laughs> and cannot call the shots. You know, and we, we, you ask, okay, is China preferable or Russia preferable? No. A global common endeavor is what's preferable. I don't know how realistic that is all the time. I know that everyone has their interests and their, uh, their squabbles, Canada included. But, you know, and I also know that the UN hasn't fully lived up to what it could be because of that. But I know I think we've been scared into, in a good way, shocked into saying uh, in the global community, we need these safeguards around democracy. We need a global safeguard around democracy. And part of that safeguard is adapting to the needs on the ground. (laughs) It's not to threatening our democracy and rising up and saying, stop the steal. And thereby being the people who stole or trying to steal. So that's that's an important reminder. The narrative of disaster exposes our fear of change. It exposes our uh, fear of being told to stay inside or wear a mask. The only reason why Ontario is in a state of emergency right now, why our hospitals are filled to the brim, especially our, our intensive care units are filled to the brim, is because there were these simple individual one-on-one things we could have done masking 
distancing. Yes, yeah, some people still did that and still got sick. Just the, the one-off, one-off accidents and mistakes that happen. But I think at this scale, by and large, it's because people just didn't do that. Didn't respect that fully. Walmart being crowded <laughs> and, and people just breathing everywhere and taking their, not wearing their masks properly. Um, here in Ontario, right? Uh, you know, people gathering for Christmas. I know it's painful. I wanted to go visit my brother and his family in Saskatchewan for Christmas, and I couldn't. People still gathering outside their bubbles, and, and that being the super spreader moment. And so we have to have even greater draconian uh, restrictions because we don't get it. This disaster just hasn't given or has revealed our inability to, to take the steps that we need to take. And I do think that is on a wider societal scale as well. We have, we yet to introduce the, the infrastructure supports, introduce the healthcare supports and the education supports, those investments that would prevent this from happening further down the line. The, labor protections for what we see as emerging as a service class that aren't treated with the dignity of, of the full human right to stay home if you feel sick. That's That was true a year ago, and that's a big reason why this thing spread. Uh, it, I don't know. Hopefully, when the dust settles and legislators are able to come together and take stock they're able to see that but i don't know <laughs> uh, i don't know if that's actually going to happen i hope it does okay last bit of doom and gloom that's perfect timing so the last thing to say is and, and i think i will end up on a more positive note is it's fascinating even doubly so that we're getting two narratives of hyperspace and warp speed disasters of transportation disasters that both discovery, which ended uh, discovery season three ended in 2021 and the high Republic, which was intended to uh, kick off in 2020, but we got the beginning of 2021 both involve Again, the inability to use faster than light travel. And I gather that's being explored in sci-fi novels, but I it feels like a new concept, a new new creative exploration to me. Because I mean this there are genres of interplanetary society sci-fi. And if you want to create interplanetary society, one of the plot devices and like one of the conceits really of the genre is that they've developed faster than light travel so you don't actually have to worry about the time it takes the the writer doesn't have to worry about the time it takes from to get from one planet to the other you can just go there's the joke in star wars of course that a hyperspace trip takes as long as it needs to as long as the story needs it to i do wonder 
There's a little bit there, just a bit on the side. If that's kind of true and that hyperspace is connected to the force and the force has a will and all that stuff. That's an aside fan nerdy speculation. What is interesting here though is then what happens to these planetary societies, interplanetary societies, when faster than light travel just breaks and stops being the reliable way of getting from point A to point B. When we see with the High Republic at the beginning at least is, well, all these ships come flying right at, broke right out of hyperspace and I, I don't know what happens to the Hetzel system, but clearly they're in trouble. And uh, imagine thousands of hold-on maneuvers happening on a, a, a solar system scale. That would be disastrous in itself for the people living there. And that's one of the things that galvanizes narratively, galvanizes the story, galvanizes the characters that we meet is their response to this disaster in the Hetzel system. What we see with Discovery is it's 200 years after the burn that destroyed all the dilithium. And like we saw with Picard a little bit, this is on a grander scale, a bigger scale. The Federation is so much smaller. Planets are independent from each other. Um, you know, Vulcan has left the Federation because they're too far away. Andoria, these are founding members of the Federation, and Andoria is now allied with the Orions in this uh, criminal syndicate. This is 900 years from now. This is, oh no, 900 years after the original series. So that's well into the future. That allowed them, that was a clever way of allowing them to actually tell the story that also happens to happen. Not quite as much into the future from the original series, but, and from all the truck we've known so far. The, the Federation just is sick. The, the bonds that have created, have been able to be created by this planetary society are, are so much weaker and people have trouble trusting their resources are spread thin. It gets me back, frankly, to the question that the higher Republic is going to address what do the Jedi fear? And speaking from a, a pastoral position as, as someone who works in the church and the thing I've committed to is uh, the cohesion of community that I've been bringing up this whole, this whole time <laughs> in this episode it seems to be really what this is about. This episode is about the way great disasters either unite us or divide us. And here are two transportation disasters that by their very nature divide and separate. They don't necessarily divide, but they separate. And you know, we are all the Republic. That gets pulled into question and uh, we are the church. That is being questioned. We are a united society. That is questioned. Now, what we see... In, in what we saw in 2020 was unity at what cost, right? At the cost of black lives and trans lives. And 
the lives of those without privilege. That is often how unity is is, is wielded as a weapon. That's uniformity. What, speaking as from a pastoral position, what we often lament is the loss of community, especially in cities. That the thing we fear is that our ability to influence people in the positive direction of God's love for the world and God's love for each other is weakened. And we, and it's a fear because uh, we tend to hold on and clamp down or we tend to just change for the sake of changing, just to try everything. And sometimes that's a good thing. We do need to try everything, but there is a way of doing too much and, and frantically running around trying to fix something. And that's also an expression of fear. But it is true that in cities especially, we haven't had the type of personal relationships that sustain and uh, heal and help people have meaning in their lives. People going from their apartment to their job to the gym, back home, never really encountering people and engaging people. And there are wonderful places where that is not the case. Star Wars fandom is a great way, great place that that is not the case. I have found that out firsthand. But there is still that lament, that loss that I think is being expressed by these transportation disasters that we are cut off from each other. Pandemic is specifically, it's not so much a transportation disaster. We can still go driving or whatever, but you could see it as a disaster of, well, we called it social distancing, right? We call it that. And that is such an unhelpful term, but for some people, Unfortunately, it was it was accurate. They actually did isolate themselves socially. In some circumstances, sadly, in a lot of circumstances, people have had to because either they aren't adept with the technology to connect or people haven't reached out or, uh, you know, they just, they can't handle being on Zoom all that time. So there's a lot of loneliness and loss. And it, it's, it's an amazing thing of our role as compassionate, caring people, our role as church and fandom or wherever community you find yourselves in. This is the question. Are you going to respond to these disasters, be it, 9-11 or you know, the Cylons <laughs> destroying the colonies or uh, Marco Naros launching massive boulders at Earth or uh, you know, the, the Sandorian uprising and loss of communications with the Romulans or um, uh, the burn and the destruction of Dilithium or this weird hyperspace disaster. 
or coronavirus or whatever suffering and struggle we face throughout our lives. Are we going to cower in fear and lash out in fear and, and you know, separate ourselves from each other? Or are we going to reach out and lend a hand or say, hey, I'm lonely, I need help. In the face of disaster, are we going to divide or are we going to unite? This has been episode 69 of For Christ's Sake, Anakin. If you like what you heard, please give me a follow, uh, subscribe. Give me a follow on Twitter at NEUG485. Give me a like on Instagram and a follow on Instagram at MNUG1138. I'm going to say that again, sorry, before I sign off fully. Are we going to get in this disaster of a pandemic? This is a disaster of threatened democracy and global dissolution. Are we going to use it as an excuse to divide or a reason to unite and come together? We are all humanity. We were all, in the Christian definition, we are all creation. And we all have a common source of love and life and a common hope in being who we can be for each other. Thanks for listening. And may the force be with you always.